Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. So thank you for your continued support. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, patreon.com slash bookshambles is the address to go to where you can pledge. You get extended editions of each and every episode, plus lots of other goodies as well. We've got a brand new Patreon-only podcast documentary series coming out very soon. Uh, We'll tell you about that in the coming weeks. But we can say there's some very special guests on that, including Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and... Caroline Larrington and Joe Kendall and Reese Shearsmith and lots of others as well. So make sure you sign up to the Patreon and you will get that as well as all the extended episodes and everything else. About 20 extra minutes uh, of this week's episode is available for Patreon supporters. In case you missed the news, uh, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People and the Compendium of Reason uh, won't be taking place this year due to COVID, which is no... Big surprise, but instead we are going to be doing an online and uh, some tickets available uh, in a socially distanced capacity as well. 24-hour edition of Nine Lessons. That's on December 12. It starts at midday. It runs for 24 hours, hosted by Robin with Josie and Helen Chesky and Chris Hadfield and Brian Cox and Sophie Ellis-Bexter and Tanita Tickerman, uh, lots of incredible guests that we haven't even announced yet, as well as the ones we have. We've announced about 50 guests so far. There's about another 100 to go. And one of those guests is the guest on today's episode of Book Shambles as well, Mark Watson. Obviously, we couldn't do a 24-hour show and not have Mark involved. He is Mr. 24-hour show. In fact, on the 30th October, he is doing a... Another Watsonathon, a 24-hour show of his own. You can go to his Twitter, at Watson Comedian, find out all about that. And that is also uh, the same time that his book, his new novel, Contacts, will be out, which is what we are talking about on the show today. If you want to find out more about the 24-hour nine lessons, cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons is the place to go, and we will be taking donations now and throughout that show as well. As always with the Nine Lessons and Compendium shows, all the profits will be going to charity. This year, the charities we're working with are Mind for Better Mental Health, uh, Doctors Without Borders, Turn to Us, who uh, tackle poverty in the UK, and the King's Place Music Foundation. Crowdfunder.co.uk slash Nine Lessons is where you can go to donate and buy a virtual ticket. And there's lots of rewards for pledging as well. Some exclusive stuff that is not going to be available anywhere else. So make sure you go and check that out. So go and look up all those things. Pre-order Mark's book, which is out at the end of the month. And now here is Robin and Josie and Mark. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Thank you, by the way, everyone who's uh, supporting us for our Patreon. Uh, that makes a huge amount of difference because, uh, obviously, as you know, Josie and I uh, don't have any work anymore. We've uh, That's all over and done with, whatever we used to do. Um, Trent, he doesn't have much to do anymore either. So uh, if you can support us for our Patreon, that means we can keep making um, all of the different, uh, sometimes sensical and sometimes nonsensical uh, things. What do you reckon, Josie? I, I uh, entirely support that message. Uh, yeah, if people if people want to support us on Patreon, they'll be able to access lots of things that otherwise uh, don't go out to the public. We we often do silly little streams just for our Patreon subscribers, and um, yeah. And some of the things you're supporting already make a fortune, so stop supporting them. And uh, we don't. We're still very much there, busking in a hat with one tap shoe. So um, we are joined now by uh, the, uh, the the author, comedian, polymath, uh, polymath and broadcaster, uh, Mark Watson. Hello, Mark. Hi, sorry to keep you waiting for a start. I've had a slightly chaotic morning. And um, thank you for blurting out the word polymath, Josie. <laughs> it's my pleasure. And it's completely justified. I don't think it is really, because a polymath has sort of a range of talents, don't they? Whereas my thing is just one thing, but I just find loads of different ways to do it. 
a little bit like you guys actually yeah i think that's the thing is that it, it's we don't actually when you re meet a real polymath and you see their grasp of so many different kind of ideologies philosophies etc you realize what we've done is create many masks the papier mache that we have in our house uh and the elastic bands that we use to secure those masks to our face but exactly. nevertheless the you monomath. are sorry the monomath monomath yeah the, the monomath, monomath. <laughs> we're monomaths but with a lot of papier mache in our in our art rooms yeah the <laughs> proper polymaths are these bricks that can like you know then they've read the greek classics but they've also invented something that they also know about basketball those sort of people yeah yeah it is it, it's, it's i don't exactly. want to talk to one of those pricks well i've got a mate who's a i think you would say a polymath he's a theater director but he can also do everything else and yeah it is a bit tiring actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's one thing to have a friend who reveals your shortfalls in one particular area but to reveal your shortfalls at 360 degrees is frankly unpleasant i think it's really rude yeah at parties you have to sort of move away from him because he just knows too much stuff yeah, I've never seen anyone go straight from Schopenhauer to the Crossroads Motel with uh, with a perfect segue like that. Um, I wanted to ask you about how it's been for you as a writer in lockdown. Have you gone through a particular journey with regards to your uh, ability to be creative, your methods of being creative, things like that? How how have you found kind of working um, and writing during this period? One of the things, the most... Um, Sorry to suddenly shift gears, but I've been really oh, wanting to ask. I think we're quite good at just have, having conversations that jump about a bit. We're naturally curious people. Um, well, one like one practical upshot of it, and I believe this is the case for quite a lot of people, is that I've started waking up very early. Um, my sleep patterns are not quite as they used to be. And I've got kids, so some of the week I have to be up early anyway. But on the days when that is not the case, I um, no longer seem to be able to sort of lying I, I, I think it began as anxiety basically because when everything was uh getting cancelled the festivals all of it I, there was, at the very start of the lockdown i didn't know whether or not i was going to melbourne like like you Josie, yeah, yeah and yeah. came within about 48 hours of boarding that flight with all this uh and that's the kind of uncertainty that i don't particularly enjoy in life um and then so in those those uh weird like those fever dream like weeks of March and April where thing after thing got cancelled and everything was going to shit. I was waking up with this like uh, into this wall of anxiety every morning very early and I'd be wide awake um, immediately. Um, and now uh, a few months on, I, uh, it doesn't feel like anxiety anymore, but that instinct to uh, snap awake very early has uh, remained. So I've started making that into trying to make that into productive time um which again it was partly pragmatism because during the long period where the kids were where i had to run a school out of my house um really the only charity chance... though claim it as a charity though so you're fine claim yeah, it yeah. As a charity. it's good from a that point of view yeah <laughs> uh, so I, I basically i managed to work in those days between i'd get up and work and get two or three hours of writing done if possible before the chaos descended basically wow. um and I've never been a person that likes to wake up early in the morning or is very uh, productive at all early in the morning. My brain works much better late at night, like a lot of comedians. Mm. But I've managed to seemingly managed to sort of rewire myself um, in that way. And in terms of actual creativity, I've been all right. Um, a lot of people have said that they just can't do anything or at least for long periods can't do anything because, of, you know, quite understandably, because of this sense of everything sort of pressing down on you. Um, I've been quite sort of creatively active, but I think it's almost part of the same instinct. It's just my response is a sort of, my response to these situations, to bad situations, is a sort of hyper creativity. It doesn't matter whether the stuff is any good or whether I, I just feel like I have to immerse myself in. I suppose for a lot of people, actually, writing or creative pursuits are some sort of massive displacement activity. And I think that probably is true of me. I find it easier to write than I do to think about absolutely everything else that's happening. <laughs> Whereas some people, it's the opposite. They are thinking about everything else and there's no space. I think you can either fully engage with the um, extraordinary state of things or just go deeper and deeper into yourself. And I prefer I prefer to go into it. Again, doesn't mean it's always a good writing day, but I, I don't have any trouble motivating myself. A lot of people have talked about their lack of motivation. Yeah. And I get it because it feels as if nothing is meaningful but also again a bit like robin i do have a relatively uh nihilistic point of view 
with regards to the universe anyway. So if I was under-motivated because things were pointless, I'd have never got anything done uh, in my life because there's very little point in doing anything if you really look at the broader picture. <laughs> it's not only if we're zooming out five billion years to when the sun burns the earth. No, 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 you're looking at the that very short termism there. <laughs> you're merely looking at the end. Very, again, also typical, almost solipsistic nature there. Uh, don't forget, in the trillions of years, the universe itself loses all structure all you know real sense of content everything that has ever been created there is no, no memory so then let's look all at the big content. picture all those podcasts it will be as if they never yeah. existed i know well, it is uh there will be a time where my dad wrote a porno <laughs> is no longer part of the uh cosmic imprint it'll still be top of the charts though Am I it'll right? still be top of the charts yeah yeah the um the, yeah. that's an, that's an inch that i wonder that that bit where people will say I just I, I'm finding it impossible at this point to do anything might also be because many of us are, you know, procrastinators. The, a pandemic is a great uh, procrastinating alibi. It really um, is. And, ultimate, you could say. Yeah. And, and stand up has one of the things I, I think a lot of stand ups. One of the reasons you kind of do it somewhere in there is also you have you can't get away with not doing it because you're stood there whereas when we're writing or doing anything like that there are alibis we can make if you just stand there for 20 minutes and say i'm i'm not really uh, it's not uh, you know that's the end of your book yeah, yeah. Mark, it's true. Do you feel like two different parts of your personality are satisfied by these two different things or do you feel like it's all it's all how you are i don't really know i think that um writing like writing fiction probably satisfies my personality in a uh, fuller more well-rounded way there's, mm. there's nothing i really like more in the world than being immersed in a long piece of fiction like a novel um i love the process of it even the bits that are annoying and uh, like frustrating i love having a book to think about i feel that sort of at, uh, at ease in that um stand-up isn't something that exactly makes me feel comfortable or even well it does make me happy obviously but it's a different type of it's much more like you know thrill seeking or something chasing that adrenaline um and i don't think i could have ever could have cut it just as a stand-up because as we all know um it's not very healthy necessarily for your your day to lead up to this one hour of uh big hits and then, I think it's a very healthy lifestyle very good lifestyle very honest and true lifestyle oh, we're all great people don't get me wrong <laughs> <laughs> I, um yeah i i often sort of like there are some days i have when um occasionally i'm on tour and uh you might have a day between shows and you know that all you have to do that day is find someone to write get your head in it and write for absolutely hours and that's almost a perfect day for me there's very little like would be happier with than that but then if you imagine every day being like that it perhaps is, is an illusion to think you'd always want that there's no doubt i miss gigging for example at the moment i definitely do miss it um like all well i say all of us actually it's been interesting some people obviously crave being back out there other people seem to have sort of accepted this is just what what happens these days and i, I find that very hard to let go of i've been doing stand-up all my adult life but I suppose what is interesting is, is in terms of the different parts of, I hope it's interesting, we'll see. <laughs> um, Stand-up is something I feel like, um, I don't think I'll ever be the best in the, uh, or even in the best 100, but I'm at, I've got to a level where I know I can do it all right. And the sort of audiences that I attract will probably pretty much enjoy it. And so although I keep pushing myself to do weirder stuff and more interesting stuff and just to do it better, it feels as if um, there's only so far that I can go in terms of improving. I'm always seeing people do stand-up that I believe are just much better naturally than me, and is it difficult to aspire to that standard? Whereas with novels, um, that's not even. There's thousands of better writers that have lived and also are still living. But on the other hand, you've sort of got all your life to do it. Every gig, it feels like I'm kind of doing the same thing. Hopefully, well, hopefully a bit better each time. But every book is a huge step forward because writing a novel is like, you know, it, it, there are sort of a million different increments of ability that you go through. I, I think I like that about book writing. I like the fact that there are so many authors who produce their best work in their 60s or 70s. Mm -hmm. It makes you feel as if you're on some sort of path to something. 
I, I, I'd so like exciting. to think, I think it's exciting. Yeah. I think it's, you know, there's not many fields where people are potentially more highly respected the older they get. I think that's, you know. Um, what I was going to say is, does that mean you judge your early writing quite harshly or are you quite kind to it? No, I do, yeah. <laughs> the, the first two books I never really think about or acknowledge as having been by me. Um, <laughs> I always tell people that I started with the book 11, but that was the, that was my third novel, actually. The first, I wrote two novels and a non-fiction book in my 20s, and I saw the dis... I do have copies of them, I suppose. What but was I, the non-fiction? It was a book about the environment and my attempts to sort of change and do better. Oh, yeah, I remember. I, like, that was sort of all right, but it was... The type of book which I'd now look at, which comedians sometimes write, and you think, oh, you've just done that because a publisher approached you and said, do you fancy doing a book? Which is absolutely legitimate. And, but that is what happened. I was 27, and I thought, well, yeah, I will do that. Now I don't think I'd do something like that. So I judge myself a bit for having um, made that decision. Not that my heart wasn't in it, but... But like, also, it's such a benign thing to be writing about for you to be so critical. It's such a useful thing. <laughs> It's like, oh, I can't believe I tried to be better for the environment. For yeah. God. You have to go a little bit easier on yourself. Um, but that's interesting novel, that you feel think, like... Oh, sorry, Carol. No, no, no. I, um, I think the problem with the two novels is that, that... Those two first novels is that I just had not accumulated any uh, knowledge of life. I'd hardly lived, basically. The first book, I'd only just left university. And the second one, like I'm still in my mid-20s. And, but what I knew quite a lot about was novels. I'd done an English degree. I'd had an idea for a novel while at Cambridge, came out of there. I wrote a short story with this idea, expanded it into a novel. So basically I had writerly tools at my disposal, mm-hmm. um, but no life experience. And I think the reason people say that you should write novels later in life is not that you won't be good at the writing necessarily, but you just don't, you just don't, you haven't felt things in the mm-hmm. same way. Like I'd, I mean, I, even writing that second book, I'd just got married very young, hadn't really been in other relationships, hadn't had children yet. I'm not saying any of these things are essential to the writer, but... You can see how they would change your life. <laughs> they really do. By the time I wrote the third one, I was 30. Quite a lot more had happened to me. And 10 years on from that, an enormous amount more has happened to me. So, you know, it makes sense that you'd write richer novels if you'd just done more stuff. <laughs> I, I started writing perhaps too early because I, was, I loved the idea of writing but I didn't have that much to really communicate and so I made decisions like that first book he lives in Chicago and works in Chicago the narrator but I'd never been there um, <laughs> it seems mad to me that I did that I didn't I mean even the internet was at a reasonably early stage I had to just like do google image searches in an internet cafe um, you don't think people who are from Chicago are going to read this and be like this does not ring true no it, it was I don't even know. I could have gone from New York, where I had at least been, or and I was, or in Toronto, for example, where I was. I wrote. I lived in Toronto for a bit while I wrote this book. But I, I think it was because I had this young man's arrogance of like, this book is a, the, like the narrator is quite different from me. Everything's different. From, I felt like it was more of a stylistic achievement if I could set it in a place that I'd hadn't been. It would be more of a feat of the imagination or something. Now I would always go from the first principles of. I don't think that write what you know is necessarily always essential, but. It's a bit weird to write about stuff you don't know at all. <laughs> <laughs> Have a stab at what you haven't got a clue about and hope for the best. Set it in Kuala Lumpur and just busk it. <laughs> and I, it's not that everything, it's not, I don't think that anything in the book, well, I haven't read it for years, but it wasn't, I don't think there's any like glaring uh, inaccuracies or, or bluff it's more that there's just very very little sense of place because I didn't have a sense of the place he was meant to live in. And that's the, again the sort of thing that seems fun as an academic exercise but it wasn't coming from a place of real... And the book is about a guy who um, like won't, won't acknowledge that his own sexuality and stuff, and, but all of this in a series of reveals. The book leads up to a series of reveals about a, a man's um, psychological breakdown sort of thing. And again, like quite an interesting idea technically, but I hadn't experienced any of these things at the time. I just read about them. I was basically channeling loads of other books. Um, it's a little bit how, a, bit, a little bit like how people, bands often release like a celebrated first album which is full of great tunes but essentially they've you know they're just kind of replicating the music that they grew up with and then 10 albums on when no one cares about them anymore that's when they're often making the 
the well, best like stand-ups isn't it like when stand-ups well, start they're always mimicking someone yeah and and again it, there are a lot of parallels with stand-up i do a lot of hosting uh new act competitions and stuff which i enjoy i like seeing what new people are up to but it's also quite sort of it makes you feel quite cowed as well of course because there's people that are really good that like a third of your age or some shit um but yeah what's often noticeable it's different from when we were starting when we were doing open mics and like competitions there used to be loads of people that were either rubbish or mad like just yeah. didn't, i'm sure you remember the best and people who were properly eccentric people you just you didn't understand what they thought was going to happen when, when yes. they did <laughs> people that just came on and lip-synced to film clips or something dressed in a and you just thought well i, I mean and then seemed pissed off afterwards so uh, they didn't really go for that and you're like well no because it wasn't a, it wasn't really an act it was like you didn't do anything <laughs> or you'd get people that i remember seeing a bloke that just did emo phillips routines just did cover versions basically but he was welsh he was from newport or something but but the anecdotes were still set in la because they were emo <laughs> phillips or you couldn't help thinking, i don't think you did do that mate because you're you don't appear to have ever been anywhere but also i've heard so all that stuff yeah. um nowadays I suppose because there's so much more comedy online and on TV, uh, people are very, very well versed in the nuts and bolts of it. But you do see a lot of 22-year-old 20, comics who already their technique is excellent and they know all about callbacks and structure and all of it. But again, they just don't have loads to talk about yet because the, so their stuff is just about like, this is not to generalise, they're brilliant young comics, but I've seen a lot who are going to be great, but for now it's mostly just about when your mum knocks on the door and you're eating a cheese sandwich or something because that's sort of the limit of it. and that's how i feel about my early novels i was drawing on stuff that i'd seen other people do but there wasn't much of an emotional core to it that was when i first started stand-up when i was 17 i just did stuff that was like completely made up <laughs> i think to, to, well i could have talked about my life but i wouldn't have thought that i could no i don't think i would have thought so it takes a long time that's something probably that something like edinburgh gives you as well i think i don't imagine in my in the early days when i was doing 10s and 15s i had absolutely no desire to get into the details of my personal yeah, yeah. i think my the show format does allow you to build these but even then that's the thing about a novel that like i often feel like the most uh emotional and intellectual depth i can cram into it uh, an, an edinburgh show or a tour show that still is only about an hour and a bit of talking yeah. Whereas a, a novel, um, in theory, is the distillation of like perhaps a hundred hours of thinking and feeling. Well, more than that, I, I can't imagine how many hours it takes if you add it all together. So it feels. And it's not true of all comedians. There are comedians like you, actually, Josie or Kitson or whoever, about whom one one leaves thinking, like I've had an enormous swathe of stuff there in a very short time. But I, I do sort of feel like with a book, you've got eighty thousand words or whatever you you've got a much better chance of really unpacking. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, I mean, when I transcribe, Robin, I expect yours are a bit longer because you really do fit a lot into yes, your show. That's fair to say. <laughs> when I transcribe a show, uh, which is usually after the fact, it only tends to be about five, 6,000 words. Yeah, which is, which is amazing, isn't it? So in theory, a novel ought to have the clout of like... Um, you know, 12, 13? 15 festival shows, which is like a career's worth. Yeah. But you, I suppose you can't necessarily think of it in those terms. You certainly can't sit down to write a novel thinking, I hope this is as good as 15 shows put together. <laughs> yeah, I've done 10 Edinburgh, so I should have a novel now. It's funny, isn't it? Just, yeah, it should be fine. What is, what is peculiar about the process, the difference between you and a reader is that um, despite the fact that it's been that many words and several hundred hours, um, it's quite possible someone reads it in three hours in fact that's a sort of a compliment if someone says oh i just i read it on on my train journey here and you can't help thinking christ but i did that that's about two and a half years <laughs> couldn't just uh i often think that about um like I, I i don't know if this will ever happen but i'd like the one thing i'd like creatively is to be on a tv show or to, rather to be to have written a tv show where people have to consume it one week at a time, like old style, as occasionally still happens, like with um, Killing Eve or something. Because I think it must be satisfying to make something and then having it sort of drip fed and having have people talk about it, feel it gaining momentum. But and you're, you've both written book, books. It's, books are odd for that. It, it just sort of, you write it, it occupies an enormous amount of your time and life. Then it comes out, there's a very brief, very brief fuss over it. 
and then you just sort of hope people are consuming it and sometimes you hear from them but often don't and it's almost as if it never happened unless the book is you know there are people on twitter who are very successful writers who are constantly tweeting people saying oh, i've just read this but of course that's not for almost all authors that's not the experience the experience is you're very surprised pleasantly surprised that one person tweets you but you must have seen people out and about reading your books well, actually, it's only ever happened once, and I, I won't forget it. It was, um, mm. it was the book 11, so the third novel, but the first one I was sort of pleased with. And um, of all places, it was in a, um, a Londis, the uh, supermarket. Um, and it's only about six months after the book had come out. And this uh, odd, of all the places to cite uh, your own book, you, you don't expect someone to be wandering around a supermarket reading it. But... Uh, the bloke was, I, I recognised this sort of neon orange cover that the, the uh, hardback had, and the bloke looked up from the book, saw me, and obviously thought it was a hallucination uh, of some kind. And there was a great like slapstick moment as he checked the photo on the back of the book and then <laughs> looked up at me. And he must have thought I was just going around checking up on every, <laughs> every copy of the book they'd ever. I have had people send me photos or, you know, uh, uh, let me, like, tell me that they've it's very it's very rare that you actually see i often on the tube and stuff i'm always very attentive to, uh, to what people are reading um not out of ego i don't think i'm just probably like you i'm just very interested in what sort of things people are reading and i often imagine what it'd be like to watch somebody uh read it, one of my books without them knowing it was me but it could be very chastening of course you can imagine them just like impatiently putting it down or getting their phone out or there's loads of downsides to seeing someone read your book i think Yes, definitely. And you could imagine it as a very wonderful romantic experience. And then the reality of it is somebody being like. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, that's not more often than not. If you watch, if you see someone reading a book, they're not there going. No. Uh, So, so with, but I I got one yesterday. I suddenly found a load of Facebook messages that I didn't know I had in some, some weird. And I found someone had sent me one, which is saying, I'm enjoying the chapter about obsession in your uh, recent book. Uh, Though I have to say the thing I'm obsessing about most is that the end of this sentence has a capital L. So for some reason, there's a strange typographical error where somewhere in the printing, in the typesetting, a capital L uh, rather than a lowercase L was used. And it happens to also be in the chapter which deals with uh, levels of obsessive thought. That so, uh, <laughs> And it, that is a good example as well of how um, a lot of the feedback that you do get, even when it does come, is about but like, people can't help themselves. They will point out stuff like that. And, uh, you, you know, people, again, after after the amount of creative effort that a book is, still the first thing people will say is, oh yeah, it was great. Um, there was one thing I didn't really get, and then they'll, they'll explain a bit which didn't really make sense, or oh, one no. time, um, in my first book, there was a, and this shouldn't happen with copy editing and stuff, but things do slip through. In my first novel, I sent an early copy to a friend, and she was like, oh, I really liked it. Um, at one point though, he refers to going for a drink with someone who, earlier you've said he's already dead and um I, I thought you must be wrong because like i've read this 80 times so is my editor so is a copy editor. but no sure enough i looked for the proof and um yeah somehow what was chopping and changing i I'd, I'd brought a character back to life <laughs> i think it stayed Just like that. i had to change it in the paperback i managed to but but like that's a good example of how even after the y- years of feedback that go into a book the first time a genuine reader reads it they'll almost certainly spot something that shouldn't be there you sort of have to let those things go a bit i think see I, i'm thinking in the next one that i'll just have one g that is in a different font to the whole of the rest of the book <laughs> and see if that one picks up but it's an inter- I, i'm interested in that process when because to me the most frustrating part is when you're having to chop and change now i'm talking about non-fiction i've only ever written short fiction whereas you you know that that bit i'm interested in fiction as well that thing where that when you are that needs to change and that needs to change and then suddenly you realize oh that deck of cards now that means that and yeah. i did find at the end of the last one i was really i was angry and i was frustrated and i hated the book because i'd lost i'd felt that it had all unraveled and i didn't know and then now i can go back to it and go now that i'm writing a new one that's going to be shit instead um <laughs> yeah. i can look back and go actually this one was all right um but it what there is a point where i really felt 
I think I'm not very good organizationally. I like I like writing. I like going bang, 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 yeah. bang, bang. And then someone goes, now you have to put it in order. Ow! Oh God, this is, yeah. you know, it's like trying to order a bookcase, but it turns out that spine's slightly bigger. And then that, oh man, now physically they're the wrong sick. colors. I'm just like physically sick. When people say, Oh, I need to edit this script, you need to move this scene to here. I'm like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, but but it's perfect already, isn't it? I just, yeah. I've, I've written it, haven't I? I'm I'm the same, really. One of the reasons that I'm able to write novels, um, you know, the, the way that I get past that sense of um, the fear and, and doubt and all the things you have in the creative process is to just, uh, again, just throw it all down in a first draft. I, I don't edit very much at all as I'm going along at the first draft. I, I just make myself do it. Most of the best advice about writing I've heard has been to do with just throwing yourself in. Um, there's a, I've never really had a sort of mantra, but so years ago I read someone said, uh, the best way to start working is to start working. And mm. that is always in my head. If you like all the ways you could just be sitting there and I, I do plan and plot a bit, but basically I will just plunge in as hard as I can. And as you say, Robin, what that means is your first draft um, is it is like an enormous room that uh, is full of junk and you know some of the stuff is worth having, but you can't see what's what. And I, at that point, I don't even give it to an editor yet. I pretty much have to do a draft for myself before I even can do that because I'm aware that my first draft is uh, total chaos. And then I, I don't enjoy unpicking that any more than you do. Mine was a disaster. But this is so much self-motivation on your part, Mark. The idea that, you know, you are able to make an entire draft of a, of a full-length novel before you even get it to another human being. Check it over, rejig it before you even get it to another human being. Yeah, there's just a bit of secrecy about, like, in my um, sort of, in my psyche. Some people, some writers, like, can't get feedback quickly enough. They'll send the editor just the first 10,000 words and go, what do you think? Um, they'll show friends, loved ones, you know, as the process is going on. And I'm not like that at all, really. I don't like anyone to see anything until... I've stepped away from it and said, right, well, I think this is what it is. I think it's partly because um, a novel is quite a, you know, you don't necessarily know what it's meant to be first time out. And if people start sticking their oar in too early, you'll lose faith in something maybe, which is also quite fragile. But it's also just part of my personality. At school, I used to bloody hate it when the teacher walked around and looked at what you were writing as you were doing it. And part of that mentality has never gone away. Anyone looks at anything while I'm doing it, I'm like, excuse me, this is, this is, this is unacceptable. You can, but then how does that work for preview shows when you're well, writing a stand-up show? Yeah, I, I don't seem to feel the same way about stand-up. I think it's, I think for whatever reason, I don't mind going up on stage in front of an audience and saying, now, nah, I love <laughs> you, I don't think this is very good. <laughs> but you're still holding it though, you, you've, you've got it. You're not holding the book, you're handed the book over, you are not the voice that's being heard, it's your typing that's being read, if you see that, whereas I, I mean, I, I think that's one of the hard things when people do move from live performance to writing, which is we have an ability to create quite often an illusion of the connection of ideas on stage, yeah. which when you've actually written, like the first draft of my last one, that was exactly it, which I realised when I sent it and then said, don't no one open this document, it was insane. <laughs> It was, you know, it, it had, uh, yeah, I, I was many unreliable narrators. Uh, and, and it's, so I think that's part of it as well. It's a different process, isn't it? Where you go, I'm, I can also keep apologizing. You know, you can't go, you know, if, if you keep putting that in your first draft, sorry, eventually people find that. Whereas on stage, you said you can kind of go, oh, well, sorry about that one. That's not, not the best routine about a Daxon that uh, you probably heard. There's, there's my persona well it's not even a persona the way i am on stage is so much like that anyway i'm more than capable of even in a finished show just saying to the audience well these last 10 minutes haven't really gone well at all <laughs> as you say you don't have that luxury in a novel you um unless it's unless it's tristram shandy or one of those novels from 300 years ago where the author's constantly talking about themselves writing it i think it's fair to say in a novel you um you can't really end a chapter by going and I'm not completely sure why she did do that. It doesn't completely <laughs> know about her, but we need her to do it for something that's going to happen in 10 pages time. Right, on we go. Reader, my drinking friend was dead. Um, the, uh, 
we should mention we talked a little bit at the beginning about being tangential and, and procrastinating and now that we're at the end of the show i think it's been tremendously uh, useful for you that we've managed to procrastinate so far away from the subject of the show which is your new novel contacts that this is the very first time now 58 minutes in that we've even mentioned the title um good because quite often there seems to be something a bit sort of mercenary about it you see people do a podcast where it's nakedly just about you know talking about their product and this is this is the opposite of that from a purist's point of view we've we've not even touched on it i don't want people to even think about it (laughs) but it is i just um i started reading it last night and uh i'm immersed in it and it's should we just tell people basically the starting point of of this this book uh, yeah, it is about a guy uh, roughly my age, um, so a guy in his uh, early 40s who, um, uh, sort of quiet, not very dramatic sort of guy who um, uh, decides to, to kill himself and um, tells his whole phone book, basically sends uh, the same text to everyone in his phone book, just saying, I'm decided to end my life. Um, and then he gets on a sleeper train from London to Edinburgh uh, and... Um, the book is about the chaos unleashed in the lives of everyone that he knows by this text and their efforts to um, contact him. But once he sent this, he puts the phone on uh, to airplane mode so he can't be contacted. So the and the book is called Contacts because uh, of that thing of like basically what what is interesting about it I think is that the, the germ of the idea is that a few years ago I did have a text like this. It was nowhere near as uh, exceptional. It was just a text from someone saying I'm having a really bad time. I, I don't know what to do. But I didn't know the person that well. And from the tone of the text, it was quite obvious they just sent it almost blindly to loads and loads of people in their phone book. And I didn't, I, I think I did, I did respond. But uh, I was thinking, God, this is a mad thing for that person to do. But it also makes complete sense. It's a completely human thing to do. And, you know, I, I think what the book is about is about is the fact that all of us, if you have a mobile phone, have got immediate potential contact with like 200 people in a way that's never been the case in history. So it ought to be possible to combat loneliness or sadness or any kind of human problems uh, much more easily than it ever has been. And people often talk as if devices and the internet and all of it automatically alienate us from each other because everything is virtual, because we don't put as much effort into real friendships. But this book is sort of attempt to explore the opposite. What if we use these, these devices to the full extent of their capabilities what if we connected with other people as well as we could do because and you'll often hear people say we you know we were only ever designed to know 10 people in original human societies we only ever encountered 10 and all this kind of thing and that our brains cannot cope with the number of people we are now in touch with and again this is advanced as a suggestion like social media must be bad because we're not meant to know and you can see why people say this because if you're Josie for example you're contacted every day online by far more people than, than should ever have been in your life and they're all the wrong people yeah. but i think there is a counter argument which is that we are no longer cavemen we have mm. we've evolved several thousand years in increasingly complex human societies and we now have very complex gadgets to reflect that and so what i'm saying is if someone sends a text uh, to enough people saying i am going to kill myself it ought to be possible to solve that problem collectively in the course of a night and the book is about whether it is possible or not and what happens to the people trying to do it basically right well we'll cut that bit out that seemed to be a very needy call for people to read your book the um no i think it's a very that that's an i remember a couple of years ago maybe two or three years ago where uh, a comedian who doesn't live in the uk put up a message on facebook which kind of looked like it might almost be a suicide note and it was it was an interesting night the speed in which loads of people got in contact and went, uh, have, you, have you got their new number? I, I can't get through. They must have a different phone for that country, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. and, and what was quite, I think at the end of it was an interesting thing of when you do see the better side of comedians, which I often do see anyway, but I, I think, which is that loads of people went, what can we do? How can we get in contact? Do we know, yeah. do we know a comic who lives in that city? Do we know someone who can get in contact? And yeah. then also by the end of that evening, when that person actually did feel better, they'd obviously just hit that point of a slump might have been that point of drinking, whatever it was, that they were, uh, you know, the hopelessness enveloped them. And then mm. by the, the evening it had gone. But they also saw the number of people who they probably didn't, hadn't spoken to for a long time. Yeah. In that the, they would not have concern for that person. Yeah, that's right. And it's very easy to 
easy to forget that I think people will often and I don't really do much Facebooking but um, people will often say what is the point of these Facebook relationships if if you wouldn't be in touch with the person in real life which I think is sort of false opposition then you don't need to know what they're up to but it's moments like this when it turns out the fact you haven't spoken to someone for six months doesn't mean that you don't actually care about how their life is especially when you're our age and six months can go by very easily people that you really love you still have n neglected to reach out to for that period of time it doesn't mean that you wouldn't want to if the opportunity was there i think and um i think you'll i mean everyone knows this but it is one of life's small tragedies that when somebody dies um there is this outpouring of love not just from their immediate family and friends but it, it always goes much wider radiates more widely than they ever would have imagined and it is too late for them to no, I remember the fact that uh, this really haunts me, but I suppose in a good way, when Paul Daniels was, I think, dying, he had a brain tumour anyway. Um, and I don't know if it was Debbie McGee herself, or but some, some well-wisher of his put a thing on Twitter saying, Paul is very ill and he, he might die. And all the things that you would say about him after, can you say them now? Because he is still able to get those messages. And I, you know, I can't. Or there's this convention called a living funeral or something where if you know you're dying you you basically do it you know you get everyone around and they get to say all the stuff about you but you know where you can still hear it and you know it's an unavoidable but sad thing about humans that we find it really difficult to say how much we love and care for each other until it's safe because they're not there anymore and it'd be nice to think that you can combat that but with the amount of communication options that we now have thank you mark that is uh as I said, I'm halfway through, and it's a it's a really interesting novel, and there's lots of yes, very uh, great ideas in it. I think, and and intriguing kind of ideas of psychology as well of what makes us the way that you were just talking then. So, contact is uh, it's out now, isn't it? Or is it just about? No, it was meant to be out now, and then obviously there was this business that's been uh, that's been going on, and um, there's a big backlog. But it comes out at the end of October, I think, the last week of October. Spooky. I'm going to read it tonight, just in a couple of hours. Just yeah, just knock it off. Knock of it off. Read it on your phone in the bath or something. Forget about it. Um, now, I want you to do one thing, Mark. Um, I want you to grab a book from each one of those three shelves without necessarily looking. Just grab them, and I want to see what those books are. Because people that. are always wondering what's on the shelves. Don't try and pick the clever ones. Don't no. try and go, well, well, that's where I keep all the Lawrence Durrells, right, or whatever. None of that business. Go straight in there. Very well. There will be no visiting the Lawrence Durrells. Yeah. <laughs> What have you? Uh, what have you got there then? Now, the three, two of these books I have read. Um, they're all not novels, though. They're all non-fiction. Um, exactly. I think. So this is this is a uh, book by. Oh, that's a good one. Admit, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so Henry Marsh admissions. The second of his books about brain surgery. I'm very oh, interested. Yes, yes. Um, I met him doing uh, at the Museum of Curiosities, I think it was, and was I've told this story before, but he said it must be terrifying being a stand-up comedian which given that his books are all about the responsibility of cutting into brains is quite something. Um, and that was a, quite a moving book as well, because it really? is him, the first book, which is absolutely, do no harm, isn't it? The first, right. this which is, is fantastic. The, this, and I would highly recommend, if you've not seen it, The English Surgeon. Have you seen that documentary? Yes. Really, with a Nick Cave and Warren Ellis soundtrack as well. But admissions to him talking about the the possibility of of you know having worked with brains his whole life that dementia may well be his destiny due to um genetics yeah he comes across very worried about uh alzheimer's and stuff like that he mentions it quite a lot he's obviously had more time to think about what happens to the brain over a lifetime than anyone else and he also talks really movingly and with real vulnerability about the fact that it is impossible to have that career without knowing you have damaged uh, not exactly killed but but like some people it, it won't work out and he, you have to live with the consequences of that and so it fascinates me that someone can for 50 years do a job where almost every day the the threat of disaster is in your face quite like that and he talks very very well about that i think that's yeah. a good right choice I was too. Say, did anyone else read there was about three articles about a year ago that was like that were like dementia is linked to gingivitis dementia is linked to gun disease and in my head i was like great well that's what that's what i'm going to assume from now on because that's less scary there's an <laughs> awful lot of dementia could be this and it could be that all the time isn't there yeah because it's the big concern of everyone and especially a you know a whole generation as they go into older age i think and i'll be the same when i'm there too yeah and that's why you'll grab these daily express 
stories. It was the new scientist, you know. I'm oh, not... yeah. It, if it's the new scientist, at least it's got, you know, it's got a chance. There are certain tabloids that every third headline is like, we think it's blueberries. <laughs> yeah. Is it, uh... Try walnuts. <laughs> um, so can I mention, by the way, have you read any books by Paul Brocks? No, I don't think so. I think you'd enjoy him. He's, he's written two books which are, again, dealing with uh, – one is kind of about dealing with death and and the other – is a lot of his work, he was a clinician, mm. is talking about those changes in the brain, talking about, you know, wh- when a certain amount of damage can mean the loss of empathy or can that's, mean that's the, really the loss of – yeah. yeah, I really recommend to everyone this. this I, I interviewed him a while ago and I, I really like him. And, I, and uh, yeah, Paul Brock's oh, – both, both his books are, are, are fascinating. Sorry, Mark. A bit of a change of tone for this second book. This is a book called uh, Air Babylon, which is a part of that franchise of Hotel Babylon and all those things. And it's just a series of scurrilous tales uh, about what it's like being an air stewardess, um, but done sort of fictionalised, but it's a kind of amalgam of several people. The writer took anonymous uh, testimonies from people and then kind of novelised it. So it's a, a day in the life of... Uh, the reason I read this was that about three or four years ago, I had a novel idea uh, about a, uh, a flight attendant. And um, so I read as much as I could about the nuts and bolts of the job, wrote about easily two thirds of it and then decided it was no good. <laughs> so I've got quite How many a lot times of, have you done something like that? Several times. I've written several novels that didn't, that didn't make it. Um, and as a result of those, I do have quite a lot of uh, arcane knowledge of, the specific workplaces and stuff which is of absolutely no use to me anymore or maybe the, you always hope that the project will find a way yeah. eventually i can't even remember what it was with that book it, there wasn't a glaring problem i just felt deep down that it wasn't going to work out uh, that it wasn't good enough um and yeah i think i've killed like about three or four that way <laughs> at different stages Yet again, my lack of knowledge of Rio de Janeiro seems to have really affected my story about an anthropologist living yeah. in Rio de Janeiro. Why did I set this in Malawi? Why? <laughs> <laughs> so what's the third book? I'm so oh, yeah. sorry about the knock at the door. Well, this, this is a book, um, a memoir by John Simpson, the news, uh, well, I was going to say newsreader, but that is, that's doing him down. Uh, the book is called We Chose to Speak of War and Strife, which mm. is the sort of book title you can do when you're a bit older and very well respected i suppose um but i have not read it actually i read it. he's written bloody loads of books simpson mm. and i read one of them um and really enjoyed it um and so then i went on a sort of as you sometimes do uh, in wave of enthusiasm i bought about five more of his books which i've n- not yet got round to um the reason i like it i think is that it's perhaps not dissimilar to the brain surgeon situation i'm i have very little courage basically and I'm constantly fascinated by people who choose to put themselves in harm's way or load themselves with responsibility. So Simpson's first, the book I read, maybe it's not his first book, but it opens with him in this hotel in Sarajevo, um, which as soon as he hears that there's trouble in the Balkans, he, he makes it his business to go out there, basically wakes up, tells his wife he's off, books a flight to Bosnia, Yugoslavia as it was, and then this hotel is decommissioned. You're not even allowed to be in it, but he finds a way to stay in the hotel in the middle of this shelling just because he's in the because he's in the thick of the action that way and it's full of stories like that and I, I don't I don't really understand the mindset of a person whose instinct is to, to be as close to danger as possible but where we do intersect is that uh, although stand-up is one millionth as, as dangerous I do understand something about endlessly pursuing the next hit those highs and I think that's what he describes being quite bored when, when there are no wars on, basically. Mm. <laughs> and um, that, there's a tiny part of me does understand that that craving for just, you know, just one more, one more job, one more, you know, that because once you're used to that, it must be weird to just walk around Tesco and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's just all, it's all amygdala damage, isn't it? That's what we learned from Free Solo, which was, uh, if either of you have seen that, the, the one where people just climb on rocks with no form of uh, safety harness whatsoever. Tim, and was, then it, Tim he was telling me about this. Just it's, a very, it's one of those films where throughout it, he just t- hears about different friends of his that have fallen off a cliff. And, uh, and then they actually, there is research which shows that that level of jeopardy and that level of also for the people that love you to place that. I mean, that's what I often find with mountaineering generally is when you yeah. read these horrible stories and you go, wow, you left your uh, partner and kids 
and they now don't have uh, a parent and and that's what's uh, and just to die in the snow and, and it does seem interesting where yeah. sometimes it is a brain structural issue not always obviously I don't, we don't know but uh, that's an interesting thing where so our, our natural cowardice is not anything that we've nurtured it, uh, it's just a natural part of our structure of our brain has made you know you and me mark i don't i think Josie's probably braver than us but and someone else is just wired they don't have that yeah, very interesting. I, really interesting. I climbed over a high brick wall uh, just yesterday, and then I yeah. lost my nerve halfway through, and a man had to come and rescue me and let me step down via his bike. There you are. Your amygdala is in decent shape by the sound of it. Yes, I have always thought about like those people that go off and do these things and then leave behind children, and, and they. It is something to me that I'm like, I, I can't imagine that. Yeah. Sort of it's one thing if it's something like, I suppose, war journalism, where you feel there's a moral dimension to yes, it. Yes, yes. But, but um, it's another no, one, it's like Everest. It's hard to make a case that anyone needed you to climb up that mountain, especially if you're the 918th person to do it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Mark, thank you very much. As we said, uh, contact is out at some point. We don't, not entirely sure. There's in a very, but October, we reckon. Of October. I'm pretty sure it's the last week of October. But Halloween. I'll do, I think it's a spooky launch. Yes, it's a really scary book. Actually, it's really scary. Um, if that's yeah. what you want, it's really scary. It's really funny. If that's what you want, you know that's. Uh, um, and uh, um, hopefully one day we will see you again. I think with luck, I'm going to be seeing you in December for some kind of event that will uh, exist in some way or other. But we'll say no more about that now. About this event that will exist in some way or other. But maybe I'll see you before then. I hope so. I hope so. And I'm picking up a bike tomorrow, so I might finally cycle around to where you guys live and say hi. We would like that a lot. Do do that. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you, everyone who supports us for our Patreon. Thank you, everyone who listens. Uh, please share all these things out to people and uh, try and encourage them uh, because we've hit a little bit of a wall again in terms of keeping everything going. And it would be very, very helpful uh, for those of you who can support us if uh, if you will support us. Loads more stuff coming up. Don't forget, we've got we're regularly doing genetic shambles now. Uh, There's the Sunday Science Q and A uh, every Sunday, and uh, so and some and oh, documentaries oh, up there. I'm trialing a new stream which so far i've been doing on my twitch but which we're hoping to synchronize it's just due to my absolute failure with technology over and over again well and i i hope in terms of you the struggle with uh technology tragically no one saw this but there was nothing more enjoyable than than switching in today to get the connection of you holding a microphone that's been sent to you as if you had found something where you were uncertain whether it was part of a pig's entrail <laughs> quite remarkable um it was a ritual particularly uh um technological i would say and that's why we have trent burton as our producer uh -huh. who does brilliantly thanks, thanks very much bye-bye thanks guys thank you very much for listening thank you to patreon supporters patreon.com slash book shambles to pledge your support and get extended episodes Mark's 24-hour show and his book coming up at the end of October, Nine Lessons and Carols for Socially Distanced People, is on December 12. CosmicShambles.com slash Nine Lessons is where you can find out about that 24-hour show. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, and bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.